Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 12, continuing in Matthew's gospel. Last week, we spoke about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. We talked about how the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, had kind of three foundational things that they considered very much sacred and a part of their identity. Uh, We talked about the temple. We talked about uh, Jesus being actually Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, We talked about, what was the third one? I forget. Anyone remember? You guys weren't paying attention. Uh, Yeah, you're the one who taught it. Uh, And so Jesus challenged them on the Sabbath that they, it'll come to me in the middle of the study somewhere and it'll just jump out of my mouth. Um, Jesus taught that it was, the Sabbath was made for man. It was meant to be good. And now Jesus was really what the Sabbath was about. Oh, the law. That was the other one. The law, the temple, and the Sabbath. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the temple, and the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And he healed on the Sabbath, and it said that on, from that point on, they were seeking how they might kill him. And so that's where we're picking up. Jesus left knowing that they were thinking this way. He left, and we pick up in chapter 12, verse 22, and we'll read down to verse 37. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven." Anyone who says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a good tree and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the goods stored up in him. 
and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that every one will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your words here, may once again it penetrate our hearts and our souls. May you speak to us. May we see where we are in this passage of Scripture. May we look at what you're saying and see what is applicable to us and in our time. Father, I thank you for, again, your Spirit's work within us. May he illuminate these passages and may he breathe life into them as we look at them tonight. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have a portrait of Jesus being over the spiritual realm. Last week, we talked about Jesus being Lord over the Sabbath. Now, once again, we see that he is Lord over the spiritual realm. And this brings us to a, a discussion that is a little bit troubling and often a little bit difficult to just get our minds around. When we start talking about spiritual things, especially demonic activity, it really forces us to places we don't usually go, at least most of us, especially for us in the Western world. We have a way of trying to scientifically present everything. And so when you start talking about the spiritual realm or demon possession, those kinds of things, it usually is met with question. It's met with unbelief. And I think it's important that we realize that the scriptures paint a real clear picture that there is a spiritual world that we are connected to. That it's not something that just is going to happen one day when we die, but there is a spiritual element, element that's taking place in and around us. And the, all of scripture gives little glimpses and disclosure of these things. Whether it be God appearing to Abraham and calling him out, whether it be through the dreams that some of the prophets have or some of the ways that they speak and God appears to them, how he works through David throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And of course, in the New Testament, we see it in Jesus and in the acts of the disciples. Spiritual elements are always taking place. The, the scriptures are a very mysterious book. There's a lot of miraculous, questionable, wondrous things that happen. Bushes are on fire, but they don't burn. God doesn't speak in lightning or in earthquakes, but in still small voices. People have dreams of angels ascending and descending on a ladder from heaven to earth that are all prophetic about what's to come. A lot of mystery. A lot of spiritual elements. And, and sometimes I think what helps us is, is our imaginations really can grasp hold of this usually a little quicker than maybe in other ways. I, I think C.S. Lewis 
or J.R.R. Tolkien and, you know, the, the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, you know, as you watch these movies and you think, oh, that's just this, you know, fantasy world going on. But then it, the whole idea is that there is this connection to the real. You know, in Chronicles of Narnia, there is this world that's Narnia that's kind of this spiritual element, but then there is the other world that they go back to. And he always draws us to the place that which one is more real? Which one is the real world? And so many times we live as if all that we see, all that we experience is all that there is. But the scriptures tell us, no, there is another world taking place and it's all around us. And we really need eyes to see, to be able to connect to what is taking place. And so what we have here is those worlds colliding in a sense. As it starts off in verse 22, they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that both he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Those who saw this were amazed, and of course you would be, especially if you knew this guy. And all of a sudden he can talk, all of a sudden he's able to function again, all of a sudden he, he's able to see. And as the people respond, could this be the son of David, as we've been talking about, that is specific to is this the Messiah? That's what son of David means. Is this the anointed one? And when the Pharisees hear this, immediately they come out with a response. Verse 24, the Pharisees heard this and said, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, we already have a glimpse into what's going on in the Pharisees' mind. They were trying to kill Jesus. And so, the ones who are trying to kill Jesus, this is how they respond to what's taking place. And we see that their response is tainted by what's taking place within their hearts. Murder is already in their hearts, and it's important to recognize this because later on, Jesus is going to reference us back to the heart. But isn't it amazing how we are influenced by our prejudices? The things that we believe influence what we see. If you are upset with someone they've wronged you, you you feel like they've let you down, everything they say can go through that scrutiny. What did you mean by that? I meant your hair looked nice. (laughs) What do you mean? Does it not usually look nice? No, I just said it looked nice. You see, but uh, if you're already upset, you're thinking in a way that's going to taint everything. And your whole world is going to be influenced by what you already are going through, experiencing, feeling, or believing. And we all do this. We all do this to some extent or another. We are all influenced by the things that we believe. It's not necessarily bad or good. It's true. 
And being aware of that is important because if we don't see things clearly, we're going to taint everything. And so how do we see this realm of spiritual things that are taking place? How do we see this? The Pharisees, they had to respond. Their response is kind of silly because they can't dispute that something miraculous took place. They just have to try and taint it to their way of thinking, to try and get people to stop believing in this Jesus. What do we do when we encounter things like this? Let's read verses 22 or 24, or excuse me, 25 to 27. Jesus knew their thoughts, the Pharisees, and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus gives a simple and logical rebuttal to their declaration that he's doing this by the prince of demons. He is exposing their folly. He's exposing their reason. And he's also bringing validity to the spiritual world of what's taking place. He doesn't try and defend that he's not by the prince of demons doing this. He just says that doesn't make sense. And he asks them, well, who do your people drive out demons from? Because how can you say I'm doing it one way and they're doing it another way? That doesn't make sense. We're both doing the same thing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12, Paul here gives us some more understanding about the spiritual world. Verse 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. Is that where our mind goes when we encounter difficulties? When we encounter trouble, when things are not going our way, do we think, ah, it's a spiritual battle? My wife and I always go back and forth trying to find out, is this spiritual or was I just stupid? You know, what, what was, what's going on? What's taking place here? And, and the truth is, I don't think there's a clear line that delineates because I think they're woven together. We are spirits, but we inhabit a body. We can pray and pray in the spirit, but we do it with our body. 
The Spirit of God ministers to our hearts. We have His Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. There, there is this indwelling of God's Spirit within us in some way, in somehow. And I don't fully understand how it takes place, but it, it takes place synonymously. It, it's together. And so when you wake up in the morning and you think, ah, I don't want to go to church. Is that just being lazy or is that a spiritual battle? It's both. When you get up and you think, oh, I really need to take care of something or help so-and-so with what they're going through or I, I need to pray for my kids or I need to do, is that just a physical thing or is that a spiritual thing? Well, it's both. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we are flesh and blood. And so our spiritual battle takes place while we're in this physical body. And we engage the spiritual world even while we're in the physical world. When you pray, that's a physical act, but it's also a spiritual act. Now, it's a difficult thing to try and figure this all out. And, and what I always wrestle against and, and fight against are the ideas that there's a demon behind every door kind of thing. You guys know what I mean? I got a flat tire. Oh, it's the devil. No, it was a nail. You know, I mean, it's like those kinds of things. Now, is it still influenced in the spiritual? Of course it is in some way. But you see, I don't think that there's a devil with a pitchfork poking your tires. But I think when you do have a flat tire, your involvement is taking place with the spiritual world and how you conduct yourself is very much spiritual as well as physical. And your interaction takes place in both worlds. And so I want to be leery that it's not everything is some demon. You know, you... you do something wrong, maybe you curse or something like that. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, you did it. Don't blame him. Was it a spiritual act? Yeah, everything is spiritual. To some degree, we can't separate them. And I'm very opposed to that, oh, look for the, the demon behind every bush kind of mentality. I just think it's the wrong posture to have. But I also think it's wrong to think there is no spiritual involvement that's taking place. And we are more inclined, or I am at least, to go to that place. My wife is more inclined to go to the other place. That's where we balance each other out and argue. Because I'm more inclined to say, oh, no, that's just them. That's just how they're reacting. That's just physical. And she's, no, that's spiritual. That's really, man, I can see spiritual warfare. And I'm like, I just see the flesh. I see this. It's both. And because we're so resistant to these kinds of things, 
or I am, some people are, you know, we can tend to be blind to that spiritual element. And we need to recognize that there has to be this balance. Jesus says that there is a spiritual battle taking place. He, he gives this illustration and he tells them that their reasoning is foolish, that it is by the spirit of God that he is driving out demons. Real important that you understand the spirit of God here because he's going to reference the spirit, the Holy Spirit, again later. And I believe it's connected to this passage. But we have to understand that there really is the spiritual element that's taking place. In verse 28, he goes on and he says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his household. Okay. What is he talking about? What's going on here? And how is he moving from this place of being divided to now binding the strong man? I think that we need to recognize again, in this spiritual battle that's taking place, there are strongholds that take place. And where people would try and push off that that's silly, that's ridiculous, especially in modern atheism that's very prevalent right now. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett, the late Christopher Hitchens, even Carl Sagan, who's kind of old now. But these guys who, who posture this belief that there is no spiritual, it's just folly. Um, we have to combat against those things and, and ask a question. Is there evil in the world? Because when you're talking about Satan, you're talking about this darkness, this kingdom of God against the spiritual wickedness. We're talking about evil that takes place. Is there evil in the world? And the answer should be yes. The definition of evil would be things that are wrong, things that are dreadful, things that are evil it kind of speaks for itself where do those things come from and if you don't believe in god and you don't believe in the spiritual world what do you do with evil where is it coming from this is actually one of the things that is forefront on a lot of the conversations that take place in atheism. I heard a talk by Richard Dawkins where he, he is presenting this hypothesis that the idea of doing good is actually genetic, that it's in our DNA to actually be postured towards trying to develop society that's healthy. I'm cool with that. I still think that could be God. He's the one who designed us. But then you still have to ask the question, what about the evil? If our DNA is meant to survive, what do you do with these people who are mass murderers, who are child molesters? What, what do you do with the people who intentionally bring harm to others? You see, nature has a lot of cruelty. I was watching the National Geographic channel and it was, 
on, I forget what it, it was like, one of these ones where nature's killers or something like that, you know? And they're really cool. You know, they have one about sharks and killer whales. And then they have this one with hyenas and lions. And, oh, it's brutal. Karina's watching. Oh, she started, like, crying because, you know, these hyenas went and got this, like, water buffalo, and they just started eating it. It was still alive, you know, and they're just sitting there eating it. And they, oh, you see it in its eyes, and you're just thinking, oh, man, this is just gross. This is gnarly. It's like, oh, gosh, that's terrible. And we're glued to it. Oh, what's going to happen next? You see, but they're doing this not because we want to just mess with a water buffalo. They're doing it to eat. They're following instincts. But what about us? What about the murder of millions of Jews in gas chambers? What's the reason behind that? Or the genocide of a group of people in the Sudan? What's the purpose behind those things? You see, and there's a darkness that is there that is spiritual wickedness, and it shows up in this world. And ignoring it or saying it doesn't exist is really foolish sometimes when you're confronted with it. And when you see these things and how they show up, you're forced to answer the question, where is this coming from? Well, there's got to be some kind of darkness that's pushing this forward. And whether that darkness you believe it's in us or whether you believe it's in a spiritual realm, there is something driving that. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 28 or 29 is if anyone comes and enters a strong man's house and carries off his possessions, unless he first binds up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Jesus is continuing to say that his ability to plunder the enemy's house is because he's able to bind him. He has greater power over him. He's able to bind him and then deliver. That's what he just did to the man who was possessed. He bound up the enemy, he plundered his house, and he took away that which is captive. And we see that Jesus is able to do this. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Paul, again, gives us another illustration that I think is very fitting for this passage. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus, he's speaking of, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What Paul is illustrating here is when the Roman army would conquer another group of people they would come in and as they would come in in their pomp and their procession just you know of just this is what we've done they're kind of celebrating with them in chains would be the people that they have taken captive they would be humiliating them as he says here they are a public spectacle look at these are the ones we took over These people are now enslaved to us. We have conquered them. And he's saying this is what Jesus has done in the spiritual realm on the cross. He has vanquished the enemy and made a 
public spectacle of them. The strong man has come in. He is, or the man has come in and bound up the strong man. He's made him captive and he has plundered his household. That's what Jesus has done in this spiritual realm. He's vanquished the foe. He's made a public spectacle of him. He's victorious. He's able to deliver people from this demon oppression possession because the kingdom of God is breaking in through the Son of God and he has the ability to bind the strong man, to plunder his house, to make an open spectacle of the enemy because of what he's done. And Paul is now speaking about the cross and those things that Jesus did. He has this ability to do still. You see, the Pharisees, they've just accused him of being led by demons, and Jesus pushes the conversation further. He tells them how he's done this. He has bound up the demonic powers, and he's plundered them. Verse 30, he pushes it even further. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Remember, the Pharisees have just said, well, it's by demons that you do this. Jesus pushes the conversation. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Now, do you want to be against the one who is able to bind the strong man and plunder his house? No, that's the wrong side. You, you want to be on his side. You want to be with him. And, and Jesus is now talking about an inward loyalty. A lot of people have conflict with this scripture and the one that's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 50, where he talks about if they're not against us, they're, they're with us. If they're not against us, that's talking about an outward opposition. This is talk word, talking about an inward loyalty. He's talking about a neutral position on who he is. If you're not willing to recognize who I am, you're against me. In other words, you don't see that I have the Spirit of God, and by the Spirit of God, I am doing the works of God. If you cannot see that, then you're against that because you're automatically saying, no, that's not God. That's, as they said, that's demons, or oh no, that's silly. Whatever it is, you're rejecting the power of God at work in these people's lives. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that position of neutrality, the deception of neutrality. It doesn't matter. I don't have to believe in Jesus. It's not that important. You know, I can just believe what I want to well, it makes a huge difference what you believe about Jesus and who he was and what he did. And it's very important. And Jesus is dispelling this myth that you can be neutral and think him less than who he really is. C.S. Lewis put it very clearly. He said, Jesus, you can either believe that he is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He's not given us any other options. And that's really the truth. That's what your choices are. Is he a liar? Is he crazy? Or is he, in fact, the Lord? 
And if he is the Lord, then what he's doing here is the work of God, and it needs to be recognized as just that. And, and we can't just pretend it's not there. You know, when you are confronted with spiritual things, it forces you to a place that's very uncomfortable. I've had a couple of incidences where I've been involved with people who have been spiritually oppressed or possessed. And I got to tell you, I, I don't like it at all. It's uncomfortable, it is exhausting, and it's very troubling. There was one time when I was in high school, or just out of high school, I had become a Christian recently, and my friends and I were in one of my friend's vans. We were driving around, and we saw this guy at the side of the road, and we pulled over and started a conversation with the guy, and as we were talking to him, the guy just started saying some really strange things. And he was talking just very, just bizarre. And as some, one of my friends who was sitting here, it was this old Chevy van, and this was before seatbelt laws, and there's like 10 of us in the van. And, and there was no seats in the back. It was just like bean bags and stuff. Yeah, it was groovy. Um, <laughs> And I was sitting on the center portion where the, like the engine cover was. I was sitting in the front on that, and I had a friend driving. Rich was driving, and Rick was on the side here. And the guy was out the window by Rick, and the guy was talking, and Rick was sharing with the guy, well, you know, hey, man, have you ever heard about Jesus? And, and talking to the guy. And the guy was just saying all this kind of just blaspheming stuff. And I was just like, oh, this is weird. And I remember thinking in my head, I wonder if this guy's possessed. And as I was thinking that, the guy just looked at me and with this voice that just kind of came out of his head. I don't know how to explain it, but it didn't sound like a man's voice. He just said, you've got it. And I remember just going, ah. <laughs> and my friend Rick heard this too, and he could not even look at the guy. He just looked straight ahead. I remember looking at Rick, and Rick's eyes were wide open. He was looking straight. I'm looking at this guy. This guy's looking at me, and I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, what do we do here? And so I did what I only knew how to do. I stood up because it had a moonroof that wasn't there. And I stood up, and I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, because I didn't know what else to do. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And the guy just sat there, and he started laughing. And I remember having this sense and awareness of inadequacy. I remember having this overwhelming feeling of everything wrong in my life that was not fitting to be a Christian. I remember just being so aware of my sin. It was just condemning me. And I, I was like... Oh my gosh, I can't talk to this guy. I can't, I can't do anything. I can't deliver this guy. Look at me. Look at the condition I'm in. There's so much wrong with me. I don't want to be here. This guy's going to womp on me. I just need to get out of here. This guy's talking in different voices. I want out of here. 
I was just, I wish I could say, you know, chalk one up for Jesus and we won. But no, this one, we just drove away. And I remember just feeling like so inadequate. And I went to my pastor at that time and I just started confessing all my sins to him. And I remember him telling me, you know what? Jesus is taking care of those things. And then I was reminded of this passage, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 6. and verse 13, in dealing with the spiritual element, it says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, who knows when it's going to come. With Jesus, this day of evil came when this person was possessed with me. This one time was with this guy standing outside could be other times where evil comes and in different ways. It doesn't have to necessarily be this kind of spiritual oppression or showing up in this way. But when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. And then it gives a list of things. And these things are interesting. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As I read through these things, I, I see, especially as he talks about the belt of truth, the belt would take everything and kind of hold it together. It would take the breastplate, the, the top covering, it would take the skirt, and it would hold them all together. It's what held the sword. That belt that surrounded all of these things is truth. And you see what Jesus is, is, I mean, what Paul is discussing here and what he's bringing about is, you know, your character really does matter. You have to be a person of truth. You have to be a person who is in right standing with God. You have to be walking in peace. How do we do that? We do that by faith. And what guards us and protects us is that salvation that comes through Jesus by his blood and grace alone. The only way we are going to withstand any spiritual attack is to stand in the place where Christ has called us to in his forgiveness and walking with him. And we need to recognize that so that when the day of evil comes, whatever that day looks like, we'll be able to stand. Because if we're not in this position, we're going to fall. We're going to be overwhelmed. It's going to consume us. And it, it can be devastating. And so we need to walk in this way, in this spiritual truth, awareness, and be people of truth, of righteousness, of peace. Have this character about us so that we can stand when these things happen and say, you know what, I'm here and I know I don't have the right to have this battle. I'm not strong enough, but 
I know the one who is able to bind the strong man. I know the one who is able to, and I am resting in him. That is my salvation. I'm there by faith. And so now when the darts come, you're not good enough. I have a shield of faith, but I believe in the one who is, and I am in him. And I have the helmet of salvation. I belong to him. And we walk in this truth, this spiritual awareness, and we live in this matter. Going back, verse 31 Jesus goes on, he says, So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, this is a a scary verse, um, rightly so. I mean, it's something that just, oh my gosh, the idea of not being forgiven, that should cause anyone to be especially aware of this, but remember the context that Jesus is speaking in. I believe the context suggests that this unforgivable sin is that willful attribute of attributing Satan to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what took place with them. Jesus said, if I, by the Spirit of God, drive out these demons, and you're saying that it's by the devil himself, there is a problem there. If you think the work of God is the work of Satan, there's a problem there. And I believe that that's really at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. I mean, that's what John Wesley and Adam Clark believe. Others believe, too, it's that rejection of the revelation of who Jesus is. It's rejecting the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe this is something that is... A process. It's not like, well, that one time you said, I think that's stupid or whatever it is. It's a belief and holding on to this belief that what Jesus did is useless. What Jesus did is demonic. I think you're in dangerous ground. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's talking specifically here to the Pharisees. And I think if you're in that camp, you're in the same ground. If you're not, I don't think you are. So if you're here thinking, have I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Are you saying that the works of Jesus are done by demons? Are you in the Pharisee camp? No, then don't worry about it. I don't think he's talking to you. He'll be talking to us though in a second, so pay attention. He goes on in verse 33, says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Who's he talking to? Pharisees, right? You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account. Everyone, that's us. We'll have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus pushes this even further. He continues to bring to light the heart of the Pharisees and the importance of where our hearts Just as there are two kinds of trees, good fruit bearing, bad fruit bearing, there are two kinds of hearts. 
And as a tree is known by its fruit, so the true nature of the human heart is shown by what flows out of it. What flowed out of the Pharisee's heart was opposition to the work of God for the benefit of their pride. That was the evil. They were attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. They wanted to kill the Son of God. And so these things that were coming out of them were from their hearts and they were evil. This connection to the preceding verses shows the evil heart of the Pharisees and the blasphemous words that they spoke with the evil intention of killing Jesus. That's the context of this passage here. Dealing with the Pharisees, what they're proclaiming about Jesus, and Jesus is telling them what dangerous ground that they are on. And then he goes on and he says, by everything that we say, a good man brings out good things stored up in him. An evil man brings out evil things stored up within him. What's coming out of you? Is it good or is it evil? It might change in a day. There's some days where I'm full of good. There's some days, man, I'm a complaining little guy. I'm just obnoxious, and I just have a lot of animosity and bitterness, and junk comes out of me. But I can tell what's happening inside of me by what's coming out of me. That's our litmus test. That's how we can see what we're really made of. You see, it, it doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you say you're Christian. If you're spewing all kinds of junk, if you're gossiping, if you're lying, if you're just kind of doing a lot of things that are showing just something's wrong. What's coming out of us? Because every empty word, that word empty means lazy or useless. Everything that is useless we're going to have to be accountable for it. And we're going to either be acquitted or condemned by our own words, by the things that come out of our hearts. This should cause us to take note what's in me, what's coming out of me. What am I? What's the character of who I am? Because what we say and do really does matter. It really does. You are responsible for your words, for your actions, for your conduct. It will either be good or it will be bad. And you will either... Side up with Jesus or you will be against him. Where do we stand? And these are things that we need to ask ourselves, even though he's directing the majority of this passage to the Pharisees, he comes to this place where I think all of us can take stock and say, what's in me? What's coming out of me? How am I showing up? Because that really does matter. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is an interesting topic, and it does prompt curiosity. 
even as a kid, I used to love those ghost stories and, and movies. And Lord, I think all along there is an awareness of this spiritual realm all around us. We have this sense that it is there. And Lord, it does show up at times, and perhaps that's why we're so enthralled by those things, is because instinctively we know that they're there. And Lord, I pray that you would make us aware of how connected our lives are to the spiritual realm, that there really is just life that encompasses the spirit and our bodies, even when we die and the resurrection takes place, we are going to have a spiritual body. Don't know exactly what that looks like, but it sounds cool. And, and Lord, we're looking forward to all that that entails when we can put off this mortality and put on the immortality. And until that time, Lord, give us the sense to walk in the spirit, to put on the full armor to recognize that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but in the spiritual realm against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places that, Lord, there is a battle that takes place there. And may we fight the battle there, Lord, by, again, girding our life with truth, our hearts with your righteousness, walking in your peace, living by faith, and understanding your salvation. God, may we take this as our life and move forward in all that you have for us, Lord. I, I pray again the things that we've talked about here tonight will spark good things within each of us to be mindful of you more, to be aware of you more. Have your way with us, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.